You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Explorers Podcast. This is part seven in our series on British mariner James Cook. The only note for today is to check out our website, explorerspodcast.com, if you want to see maps of Cook's voyages. Otherwise, let's get going. Last time we left Cook, Resolution, and Adventure in Tahiti. It was August of 1773. Cook had returned to Tahiti to find much had changed in the past few years. Other European ships had come to the region, and they had brought diseases, which had taken their toll on the islanders and the sudden influx of European goods had made the island much more commerce-oriented. This had changed the islanders, something Cook lamented. He looked at the Tahitians in sort of an idealized way. They were innocent, friendly, and happy. Cook admired the simple but satisfying lifestyle these people had. He viewed himself as a protective father to the natives, and it saddened him when they saw that they were being corrupted by Europeans. They had become covetous and greedy. Cook had the same attitude toward the Maori of New Zealand, although these feelings weren't as powerful. Another thing Cook found in Tahiti was war. Island politics were always volatile, but with the dramatic social changes taking place, it was even more so. Many of the friends and allies of Cook were now gone, either dead or driven away. Still, when Cook arrived at Tahiti, the natives swarmed out to the ships, eager to trade, and as noted by everyone, steal. The islanders were quick to take anything they could get their hands on. The arrival in Tahiti meant fruit and vegetables, which was a boon to the men of the expedition, and especially the crew of adventure many of whom were suffering from scurvy. And then there was sex to be had, which always helped morale. Lieutenant Charlie Clerk, a man who is known to enjoy his alcohol and women, said of Tahiti that it was, quote, as pleasant and happy a spot as this world contains, end quote. Clerk, by the way, had become Cook's most trusted officer. Despite a carefree approach towards life, Clerk was immensely capable and reliable. He was, in many ways, the opposite personality of Cook, yet the two became great friends. The men of the expedition, of course, loved Tahiti. Warm weather, women, good food, relaxation. But there was an edge to things as well, and Cook seems to have sensed it. The innocence of the island and its people were gone. Everyone on both sides was a bit more cynical, a bit more mercenary, a bit more wary. And Cook had other problems, including one that threatened the safety and success of the expedition. On August 30th, four seamen and one marine got drunk and were caught, quote, making too free with the women, end quote. That translates into they were trying to rape them. Cook had the offenders flogged and had to work hard to soothe the feelings and inflamed emotions of the islanders. Cook's arrival in Tahiti had been a disappointment in another major way. The civil war that engulfed the island had diminished the cultivation of fruit, and the island's hogs, so numerous a few years earlier, were scarce. This was a blow to Cook, who had wanted to reprovision his fleet in Tahiti. In the end, he got some supplies and food, but needed much more. And thus, on September 1st, 1773, Cook weighed anchor after only three weeks at Matavai Bay. The men might love Tahiti, but to Cook, it was a place to get supplies and do repairs. Cook first went to the nearby island of Huehine, west of Tahiti. 
To his delight, an old friend still held power there, a chief named Ori. The man greeted Cook like a treasured old friend, and he traded to the British large quantities of hogs, yams, and plantains. Another note, at this time both Cook and Furneaux took on board an islander to serve as a translator for the upcoming voyage. Cook originally had a young man named Porillo, but he jumped ship for a woman not long after joining. Cook then added a man named Hitty Hitty. Furneaux took on a native from Raiety named Omai. Omai went on to learn English from Jim Burney, one of Adventure's midshipmen. He will have an important role in Cook's third voyage. Now, Cook's mission was focused on Terra Australis and the Southern Ocean, but now that he was amongst the Polynesian islands, he couldn't resist the chance to explore some more. He sailed through the Tongan archipelago, essentially following in the footsteps of Abel Tasman. However, Cook mapped and explored, while Tasman was mostly focused on getting home. Resolution and Adventure went deep into the Tongan Islands, each day bringing new discoveries. On October 1st, he reached Tonga Tapu and Awe, the two main islands of the Tongan archipelago. This is 1,600 miles, or 2,600 kilometers, west of Tahiti. Cook called this area the Friendly Islands, as the people were so pleasant. It all reminded Cook of the early encounters with the Tahitians. In addition to the friendly natives, the lands were cultivated and had surplus food to trade and Cook praised the Tongan canoes, saying they were superior to those of Tahiti. Some were so large and sturdy they had cabins built on top of them. On each island, there were usually formal ceremonies welcoming Cook and the British. Cook described one, which included singing and dancing. In response, Cook had his bagpipers play for the Tongans. And while thieving was still a problem amongst the Tongans, Cook and his men always felt safe on these islands and amongst the people. In mid-October, Cook headed south towards New Zealand and Queen Charlotte Sound. The ships approached from the western side of New Zealand and planned to go through the Cook Strait and into the Sound. The problem for the ships was that storms were at their worst at this time of year, and as they neared the Cook Strait, a fierce gale whipped up, blowing the ships away from the coast. Adventure and Resolution were separated on the night of October 29th. Cook and Resolution fought the storm and managed to get to an inlet in the Cook Strait. Cook got to the rendezvous in Queen Charlotte Sound and waited for adventure to reappear. And waited, and waited. Days turned into weeks. The crew took on water, timber, and food, and did repairs to the ship. Finally, Cook decided he could wait no longer. He was determined to continue his exploration of the Southern Ocean, and thus resolution departed New Zealand. Cook, as you can imagine, feared the worst. That adventure was gone, swallowed by the ocean, or smashed to pieces on the rocky New Zealand coastline. But the two ships had been separated before, so he could only hope for the best. Cook left a message at the camp in hope that Furneaux and Adventure would finally make their way to the location. Resolution departed New Zealand on November 26, 1773. Cook noted with pride that there was not a sick man on board. So what was the fate of Adventure? Was she lost or crashed along the coast? The answer was no. And now I want to do a sidetrack to our story and follow Adventure for a few minutes as their time with us is mostly done. So, as noted, Adventure struggled to get to the coast in the storm and was separated from Resolution. Furneaux, never the most daring individual, thought it too dangerous to press into the Cook Strait. Adventure would struggle against the bad weather for days, which turned to weeks. She was leaking, which made the ship difficult to manage. Powerful winds blew them northeast, away from the coast. Desperate for food and water, Furneaux managed to bring the ship into Talaga Bay, which is quite a way up the coast of the North Island. In the end, Furneaux didn't get to Queen Charlotte Sound until November 30th, four days after Cook had departed. Once at the rendezvous, Furneaux saw the remnants of Resolution's camp. Carved into the trunk of a tree at the camp were the words, Look Underneath. That's where Cook's letter to Furneaux was found, 
buried at the base of the tree in a bottle. In the letter, Cook informed Furneaux of his intentions. Resolution would sail to the southern latitudes and then go east, all the way to South America in search of Terra Australis. Cook would then sail north, possibly stopping at Easter Island, and then west again back to Tahiti and then New Zealand. Cook gave Furneaux no specific orders and set up no rendezvous. In reality, Cook wanted himself unfettered from adventure. Having a second ship was a great idea, but not if it was commanded by a man he didn't trust. In that case, it was just a millstone. Thus, Cook left things open-ended for Furneaux, sort of washing his hands of the man. As a result, Furneaux decided to head back to England by going around South America. The decision was not very imaginative, but that's Furneaux. In a nod to the mission, Furneaux was determined to sail along the high latitudes, just like Cook was planning. However, before he could do any of that, Furneaux needed to overhaul his ship. Remember, it was leaking badly. Thus, he would bring it ashore for a couple of weeks, getting it ready for another long ocean voyage. Now, before departing, Furneaux dispatched a team of ten men, led by Master's Mate John Rowe, to collect some wild celery, which was a known antiscorbutic. The team took a small boat into the sound, but they did not return. Midshipman Jem Burney and some Marines were sent to investigate the disappearance. The British found some Maori who fled. Burney and his Marines investigated the site, and they were appalled at what they found scattered about the beach. There were European-style shoes, plus human body parts, including a hand with a distinctive tattoo, identifying it as one of the missing men. Further investigation uncovered some baskets, which were full of roasted flesh. Bernie and the Marines went and confronted the Maori, firing their muskets at them from a distance. They then found more parts of their comrades, heads, hearts, lungs, and more, laid out on a beach. Bernie had some Maori canoes burned in retaliation, but could not do much else as he and his team were greatly outnumbered. He thus ordered his men back to adventure. Furneaux was devastated by the news. Many of his men encouraged him to sail up and down the sound and fire cannons into the villages, teaching the Maori a harsh lesson about what happens to those who mess with the British. But Furneaux decided against such a random response. It would do no good to inflame the entire region against the British. At this point, he and the rest of the men just wanted to go home. The deaths of their shipmates had sucked the life out of Adventure's crew. By the way, it was later learned that some Maori had angered John Rowe and his men by stealing some items. This led to a confrontation, which led to shots being fired, which led to some Maori being killed. And while the Maori were terrified of the English weapons, they also knew they were slow to reload. And once all the British weapons were discharged, the superior numbers of the now-inflamed Maori held sway, and the sailors were overwhelmed. And so that will mostly end our dealings with adventure. We will talk a bit about the ship later, but for now, I want to return to Cook and Resolution. Cook sailed from New Zealand on November 25, 1773, his ship fully stocked and the men healthy. As planned, Resolution headed south. The temperatures quickly dropped and the men bundled up in the face of fierce winds, hail, and rain. On December 12th, they sighted the first icebergs of the season. When the Resolution reached 66 degrees south, she turned east towards South America. The weather was frigid and harsh. Thick ice coated the ropes and sails. There were reports of men standing on deck, covered in snow and ice, as if clad in armor. Again, Cook's plan was to circumnavigate the polar region, proving Terra Australis was a myth. Cook, by the way, was proving himself to be an expert at navigating his ship through the ice. This sort of thing was never easy. Cook's experience in the ice went all the way back to his time in Canada, and here in the Southern Ocean, he learned the nuances of ice packs, bergs, and flows. One mistake amongst the ice could doom a ship, but Cook was mastering the art of navigating through such terrain. On Christmas, there were double portions of pudding and brandy, and everyone got roaring drunk. 
but it was not long before Resolution's work continued. The ship zigzagged her way through the ice, pressing south and east. Charlie Clark counted 250 icebergs in a single day, some as high as 200 feet or 60 meters. As 1774 rolled around, Cook was showing no signs of altering the punishing course of resolution. Also, he grew moody and withdrawn. People have said that his obsessiveness with the job was overwhelming him. And then, in early January 1774, Cook ordered resolution north, much to the relief of the crew. However, on January 11th, Cook suddenly turned the ship around. It was south again. Of the decision, midshipman John Elliott wrote, quote, All our hopes were blasted in a minute. Captain Cook ordered the ship to steer due south to our utter astonishment, and had the effect for the moment of causing a buzz in the ship. End quote. The truth is that the crew was, at that moment, doubting their captain. Some thought him sick, both in body and mind. They had always followed him, and he had gotten them home, but now they questioned if they would ever get out of this ice-filled nightmare. And to be honest, Cook was sick, as were others on the ship. The weeks and months in the cold was taking a toll on the men. It didn't help that rations were cut to two-thirds. Hungry men rarely saw the good things in life, and morale fell. As the ship went south, the cold snow and ice chipped away at the men and the ship. Some called the storms in this region the worst the ship had ever seen, with waves frequently swamping the deck. In late January, Cook and Resolution continued further and further south as the water suddenly cleared of ice flows. Resolution crossed the Antarctic Circle on January 26th. For several days, the ship continued onward. Once it was thought that land was sighted, but it turned out to just be a cloud bank. And then on January 30th, 1774, Resolution came to a halt. Before her was nothing but an immense field of ice. Botanist Johann Forster said it, quote, looked like the wreck of a shattered world, or as poets describe some regions of hell, end quote. Cook, however, was able to find some beauty in the desolate and bleak landscape, noting its perfect snow whiteness. With the ocean threatening the freeze around him and his food and water running low, Cook knew his southerly run was over. He had reached 71 degrees 10 minutes south, further south than any man had ever gone. It was a record that would not be broken until 1823. Cook felt if there was a continent in the South Pacific, it was safely tucked away behind the fields of ice. So Resolution went north. I want to point out that Cook nearly reached South America on this leg of his voyage. He had sailed 4,000 miles, or 6,400 kilometers, and that's in a straight line. Now, some of the men, no doubt, hoped Cook would just continue east and round Cape Horn and head home. But that was not the plan. The weather was terrible this time of year at the Cape, and besides, Cook had more exploring to do. In February, Resolution headed north towards Easter Island, which is about 2,000 miles, or 3,200 kilometers, off the coast of South America. Along the way, Cook broke down physically. He had fevers and was vomiting. It got so bad he could barely walk. Some have suggested that Cook was suffering from anxiety, his obsession with the mission overwhelming him. As there was no meat left on the ship, a pet dog brought by Johann Forster and his son was killed and fed to Cook. That helped, and by the time Resolution arrived at Easter Island, a.k.a. Rapa Nui, on March 11th, Cook was doing better. And just the sight of the island was a relief to the men of the expedition, as Resolution had been at sea for 103 consecutive days. Easter Island is, of course, famed for the monumental statue called Moai that dot the island. Easter Island is triangular in shape and only 13 miles long, or 21 kilometers. It is one of the most remote places in the world. The nearest populated land, Pitcairn Island, is about 1,300 miles or 2,000 miles away. In 1722, Dutch navigator Jacob Rogoveen had been the first European to arrive at Easter Island, finding a population between two and 3,000. Cook was only the third European to visit the island. 
The islanders were peaceful and friendly and happy to trade with Cook and his men. They spoke a Polynesian dialect, so Cook's interpreter, Hitty Hitty, was able to converse with them. Because of this, Cook surmised the natives had come here from Polynesia. Cook's visit to Easter Island would prove to be disappointing. The natives did not have much surplus of food to trade, and fresh water was scarce. Resolution would thus not linger and turned west, Tahiti the next destination. But there would be one other stop in between, and that was the Marquesas Islands, a group of 15 islands along the route to Tahiti. No one had been to these islands since they had been sighted by Spanish explorer Alvera de Mandaña in 1595, nearly 200 years earlier. In a fascinating twist, the islanders were not interested in trading for things that most other people found valuable. They didn't want axes or nails or beads. Instead, they wanted red feathers. Once Cook and his men figured that out, they were able to trade for hogs and produce, plus gather water. Resolution stayed in the Marquesas Islands for six days, departing on April 12, 1774. Ten days later, the British were back in Tahiti. The crew of Resolution was happy to be in a safe haven, but Cook was disturbed to find the island in a state of war. He reported more than 7,000 warriors and 330 canoes had been assembled for an invasion of a neighboring island. Resolution stayed in Tahiti for only a few weeks before moving on. Cook still had a lot of exploring to do. And frankly, the island couldn't provide the food and provisions he needed, and so onward went Resolution. However, for this part of his voyage, Cook was not focused on Terra Australis. Instead, he was now taking aim at the hundreds of islands of the South Pacific. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, explorers. It's Matt. What if you could poke, prod, and explore the mysteries of nature from wherever you are? Outside In is the award-winning podcast from New Hampshire Public Radio that allows you to do just that. From explorations of nature to important conversations about climate change and sustainability, award-winning reporter and host Nate Hedgie covers all kinds of topics related to our world. They cover fascinating topics, like the wild horses of the American West and why they are so divisive, little-known tales from the world of competitive dog sled racing, and the disappearing dunes of coastal Oregon that inspired the desert planet of Arrakis. Through in-depth reporting and narrative storytelling, Outside In meets listeners wherever they are to take them on the journey. It's not just for through-hikers and conservationists. It is a podcast for anyone who is curious about the natural world. Listen to new episodes every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. From May through October of 1774, James Cook and Resolution wandered the Pacific, exploring, charting, and discovering. One of the first stops was the island of Reati, just west of Tahiti. There, Cook dropped off his Polynesian interpreter, Hitty Hitty. The man wept at leaving Resolution, but Cook knew he wasn't coming back, and he had no desire to bring the young man to England. Resolution headed west to the Tongan Islands, the crew enjoying their time amongst the friendly people of the region. During this part of the voyage, Cook systematically weaved his way through the area, filling in the blank spots as he liked to do. 
By the way, Cook was always frustrating the expedition scientists. While no one liked Johann Forster, it didn't mean that he wasn't good at his job. He and his son would go collect specimens whenever they got the chance. Cook, however, didn't give them that many opportunities. Now, one unique part of this leg of his voyage was when he ventured west of Tonga into what is today we call Melanesia. Where Cook had been, Tahiti, Bora Bora, Tonga, that was Polynesia. Melanesia is west of Polynesia and consists of places such as the Solomon Islands, Fiji, New Caledonia, and Vanuatu. New Guinea is also considered part of Melanesia. Anyhow, these islands had only been visited by Europeans a handful of times, if at all, and so Cook wanted to poke around. He thus sailed amongst the islands associated with Fiji, Vanuatu, and New Caledonia. Many of these are volcanic islands, hot, lush, and wet. The native people were more suspicious of the British than in Polynesia. On one island, the people thought the white-skinned Europeans were ghosts, and they tried to drive them away, forcing Cook to order his men to fire their weapons. Another dangerous incident occurred on Aromanga Island in Vanuatu. Cook and a team of men came ashore at an island to gather water and timber and found themselves confronted by a mass of natives who tried to take Cook's boat. Cook fired his musket at the islanders, but it misfired. Some of the other men fired their weapons, causing the natives to flee. The islanders responded by hurling darts and rocks at the British, as well as firing arrows. One of Cook's party was injured in the melee and two islanders killed. Despite these confrontations, Cook did try and refrain from getting into fights with the natives. In fact, one Marine was flogged for overreacting to a situation and shooting his musket at some islanders. The truth is that Cook and his men were getting tired, and their patience was running thin. They had spent more than two years at sea. The men really wanted to just go home, not get into fights with islanders on the other side of the world. Cook even seemed ready to move on. In early September, he sighted New Caledonia, the first European to do so. This is a good-sized island of more than 18,000 square kilometers, or 7,000 square miles. But Cook didn't explore much of it. By this point, he was moving quickly and wanted to get to New Zealand to catch the favorable winds and currents that would take him east. And on cue, Cook did turn Resolution to the south and New Zealand, the first step in the voyage home. Resolution pulled into Queen Charlotte Sound on October 17, 1774. Cook saw signs that adventure had been there. But there was no message from Furneaux, so Cook could only wonder what he was up to. Now, one of the odd things about Cook's arrival in Queen Charlotte Sound were the actions of the Maori people. When they saw Resolution, they initially went into hiding, and then they were overly friendly. It was all very strange, and it was obvious they were edgy about something. Well, it wouldn't take long for those reasons to emerge. And that was because of the attack on the men of adventure and their subsequent killing and eating. Cook got the story piecemeal, but he eventually figured it all out. A group of men from a European ship had gone ashore and gotten into a fight with the Maori and had been killed and eaten. The Maori claimed it wasn't the English, but Cook suspected it was. Now, Cook could have taken a course of revenge for the wrongs committed on his fellow sailors, but he suspected that if the incident had occurred, there was a good chance that his own men had probably done something to provoke the clash. Also, Cook needed time and a safe place to prepare resolution for the final leg of their journey. If he went off shooting at the Maori, that was never going to happen. In the end, Resolution and her crew spent three weeks in New Zealand, the relations with the Maori cordial and productive, although there was a tension that no doubt hung in the air between the two peoples. The time in Queen Charlotte Sound was spent repairing the ship, plus adding food, water, and provisions. Resolution was not in the best of shape due to the wear and tear of more than two years at sea, but nothing major was threatening the vessel's overall health. As a note, Cook had learned to speak some Polynesian by this time, and he was able to have basic conversations with the local people. Resolution would depart New Zealand on November 10, 1774. 
Cook sailed south and then at the 55th parallel turned east towards South America. His plan was to round Cape Horn, explore the South Atlantic, and then head to Cape Town. This would finish his circling of the polar region. The winds drove Resolution east at a stunning speed, the ship making between 140 and 180 miles, or 225 and 290 kilometers, each day for four consecutive days. It took just five weeks to reach the coast of Chile. The men and Cook were thrilled at the progress. To simply be sailing with the winds, no need to stop and explore, was exhilarating. As Cook prepared to leave the Atlantic, he ruminated on what he had accomplished, writing, quote, I have now done with the southern Pacific Ocean, and flatter myself that no one will think that I have left it unexplored, end quote. In Cook's mind, he had pretty much done all he could in the South Seas. Resolution spent Christmas 1774 anchored in a safe bay at Tierra del Fuego, which is the southern tip of South America. Today we call the location Cook Cove in Christmas Harbor. Sixty to seventy geese were shot, providing the crew with a wonderful Christmas dinner. And then there was drinking, lots of drinking. Resolution spent eight days at Christmas Harbor, enjoying the friendly native people, good weather, and plenty of food. The men compared it to the time Resolution had recovered at Dusky Sound in South New Zealand. The only issue that arose during this time was when a Marine, Bill Wedgborough, a notorious drinker, went on deck one night to use the bathroom and was never seen again. Shortly after Christmas, Resolution departed and then proceeded to sail around Cape Horn. The weather was remarkably calm and the ship made the journey with few problems. She entered the Atlantic on December 28th. A few days later, Cook and his crew came to an island filled with seals, sea lions, and penguins. The men took advantage and stocked up on the ship's supply of meat and blubber, the latter for oil. Now, let's remember that Cook was not done exploring. He was determined to finish his circling of the polar region, and thus Resolution headed east along the 60th parallel. A note here. There were some people who had sailed the South Atlantic and reported seeing land. The French explorer Beauvais is one example. And Scottish explorer Alexander Dalrymple, Cook's old nemesis, had recently published a map suggesting Tierra Australis was in this region. Dalrymple was a big supporter of the idea of Terra Australis, and Cook was determined to remove the mythical continent from the map. Resolution sailed east across the cold and choppy Atlantic waters, and on January 14th, land was sighted. As Resolution neared, they saw snow-capped mountains and rocky beaches covered with penguins and seals and walruses. It looked desolate and uninhabited. Cook wrote it was, quote, savage and horrible, not a tree or shrub to be seen, not even big enough to make a toothpick, end quote. This is what today we call South Georgia Island, made so famous in the story of Ernest Shackleton and Endurance, which I'd like to point out you can listen to on this podcast. But back to our story. The island had probably been sighted once or twice before, but Cook's arrival marked the first confirmed visit to the area. These bleak islands were uninhabited and offered little to Cook. Johan Forster said it was so desolate, criminals should be sent here as punishment. Cook circled the main island and then moved on, hugging the 60-degree south latitude as he went east. This led to another discovery, some islands about 430 miles southeast of South Georgia, or 700 kilometers, which he dubbed the Sandwich Islands in honor of his sponsor at the Admiralty. The Sandwich Islands were uninhabited, remote, and inhospitable, even more than South Georgia Island. The southernmost of these islands was Thole Island. Located at 59 degrees, 13 minutes south, it was the furthest southern land that Cook discovered. I want to note that while these islands didn't help Cook, and he saw little potential in them, his descriptions of the seals, sea lions, and whales would help kickstart a new industry in the region. Within a few decades, whaling and sealing stations would pop up on these islands, and a lucrative industry was born. 
Cook and Resolution continued east for three weeks and then turned north, aiming for Cape Town in South Africa. I want to note that Cook never pressed Resolution into the ice in the South Atlantic. I think he knew that that would break his men. They were two and a half years into their mission, and they just wanted to get home. To spend time poking around the ice would have been soul-crushing, not to mention dangerous. And so, by turning towards Cape Town, Cook had circled the polar regions. He later wrote, quote, I was now tired of these high southern latitudes, where nothing was to be found but ice and thick fogs, end quote. Cook had thus proven the non-existence of Terra Australis. In doing so, he had covered 70,000 miles, or 112,000 kilometers, which is almost three times around the world. Author Martin Duergaard, in his biography of Cook, made a rather interesting observation, calling Cook's expedition not a voyage of discovery, but a voyage of anti-discovery. And that really struck me. I mean, in reality, Cook had found very little. Sure, there were some new islands in the South Pacific and South Atlantic, and other places were more carefully charted and set into their place on the map of the world. But there was not much else. And there was no big reveal like the circling of New Zealand or the mapping of Eastern Australia and no Terra Australis. Regarding Terra Australis, Cook wrote, quote, The greatest part of this southern continent, supposing there is one, must lie within the polar circle where the sea is so pestered with ice that the land is thereby inaccessible, end quote. Cook was confident that he had done all he could to explore the Pacific and disprove the Terra Australis theory. But like I said, he was concerned that there was no great discovery to attach to his expedition. He worried that people wouldn't think the time and effort put into the endeavor was worth the expense. No matter, Cook and Resolution headed north, the exploration part of the journey complete. Resolution put into Cape Town on March 21, 1775. One of the first things Cook did was to transfer all of his logs and charts to a British East India Company vessel heading back to England. Meanwhile, he docked Resolution for a badly needed overhaul. Her hull was caulked and her sails and rigging repaired or replaced. Also, the ship's rudder was removed and repaired, as it was determined that it would not likely last to England. Now, upon arriving in Cape Town, Cook was greeted warmly by the port's leading citizens. They toasted the now-famous navigator as he told them of his journeys. Also, the crew of Resolution received a welcome respite from the long and hard days at sea. Cook's arrival also allowed the crew to catch up on news of the outside world and of their comrades, the men of adventure. There was even a letter from Furneaux left for Cook. Here is the rest of their story. Captain Furneaux and the adventure had arrived in Cape Town on July 14th of the previous year. The crew was suffering badly from scurvy, and there had barely been enough healthy men to bring the ship into the harbor. Cook was, as you can imagine, upset at Furneaux's report, including the tales of cannibalism in New Zealand. He automatically assumed Furneaux's men had provoked the Maori. No matter, Cook understood that if he ever sailed again, he needed to know and trust the leader of any other ships under his command. Furneaux and Adventure had, frankly, been more of a burden than an asset. Another thing that happened in Cape Town was Cook got hold of a copy of the newly published story of his first expedition. Written by John Hawksworth, Cook was horrified at the result. Hawksworth wrote the expedition's story in first-person narrative, sort of as an adventure story. He combined the journals of Cook, Joseph Banks, Daniel Solander, and even Samuel Wallace from his earlier expedition into a single story. And the hero, for the most part, was Banks. Banks even took credit for things such as the engravings, which were actually done by artists Sidney Parkinson and Alexander Buchan, both of whom who had died on the expedition. As I said, Cook was pretty honked off at all of this, but it did teach him that if anyone was going to look after his legacy, it was him, not others. He vowed going forward to tell his own story. One other thing I want to mention about Cook's stay in Cape Town was his meeting with French explorer Julien-Marie Crozet. 
Crozet had been the second in command of an expedition, led by Mark Joseph Marion Dufresne, that had found some islands in the Indian Ocean and been to New Zealand. Marion Dufresne had been eaten by cannibals in New Zealand, and Crozet had taken over command of the ship. The two bonded over their stories about their search for Terra Australis and shared their maps with each other. Resolution stayed in Cape Town, getting refit and reprovisioned for five weeks, finally departing on April 27th. The ship's first stop was St. Helena Island, which they reached on May 15th. The governor of the island was John Scottow, the son of Thomas Scottow, Cook's father's former employer, and the man who had paid for Cook's school tuition some 40 years earlier. Now, despite nearly three years at sea, Cook couldn't resist one last excursion on his way home to England. He ordered resolution northwest towards Brazil. About 350 kilometers, or 220 miles, off the easternmost point of Brazil, there's a group of islands called Fernando de Dorana. Cook decided to check this place out. To his surprise, he found a Portuguese fort, which fired some warning shots at Resolution. Cook wisely moved on. The next stop was home. Resolution reached England on January 29th. The next day, Cook anchored at Spithead, off the southern coast of England. The ship had been gone for three years and 17 days. Cook proudly noted that he had lost only four men, and only one of those to sickness during this time. Cook boarded a carriage to London and headed to the Admiralty to report his return. One fun side note here. Resolution would have to be brought into port and all that stuff, but a few of the men were allowed to debark at the same time as Cook. One of those men was Seaman Dick Grindle. Grindle had been married one hour before leaving on the voyage three years earlier. Cook thought it the right thing to do to let the seaman be amongst the first to head home and see his wife, who he had been married to for more than three years, yet only spent an hour with as a married couple. Side note done. Cook was greeted warmly by those at the Admiralty. Amongst the people there was botanist Daniel Solander, who had been on Cook's previous expedition. Solander was thrilled to see Cook again, and excited to hear about Resolution's accomplishments. Next, Cook headed home to his family, which pretty much wraps up the man's second voyage. Cook had done it again. He had circumnavigated the world, and in the process dramatically altered the world's view of what lay in the southern part of the globe. And if Cook was concerned that his lack of any discoveries would diminish what he had done, he was wrong. Everyone hailed him as a hero. On August 9, 1775, Cook was made the commander of a 74-gun warship, but just for a single day. The reason for this was that as a prerequisite for attaining the rank of captain, an officer had to have held the position of commander of a warship. None of Cook's ships had been warships, so technically he wasn't eligible for promotion to full captain. Well, his one-day assignment checked that box, and King George, at St. James Palace, formally presented Cook with the new rank of captain. It was an extraordinary achievement for Cook, a commoner and the son of a farm laborer. He was now Captain James Cook, which is how history remembers him. Now I do want to do a quick wrap-up of the expedition, starting with Tobias Furneaux and Adventure. Furneaux and Adventure had become the first in history to complete an eastward circumnavigation of the world. Not a bad thing. But Cook's less-than-resounding endorsement of the man was obvious. On Cook's return, Furneaux was quickly given command of a frigate and sent off to the war in America. This avoided any awkward meetings between the two men. Furneaux's ship was wrecked and sank off of Rhode Island in 1777, and he was captured by the upstart colonists. He was eventually exchanged and returned to England. Regarding the loss of his ship, Furneaux was brought up on charges of misconduct, but was acquitted. He died in 1781 at the age of 46. I could not find any details regarding the nature of his passing. It was a sad end for Furneaux, who simply found himself as the wrong man in the wrong place on Cook's expedition. 
Furneaux was someone who needed a strong hand to guide him and was ill-suited to command the ship on a voyage of exploration. He lacked imagination and was easily manipulated by stronger personalities. As a result, his work with adventure is generally seen as a failure of leadership, and I can't really argue with that assessment. Today, Furneaux is remembered by a large group of islands named after him, by Cook, called the Furneaux Group. They are a group of about 100 or so islands on the eastern end of the Bass Strait, which separates Australia and Tasmania. That is it for Tobias Furneaux and Adventure. Now, regarding Cook, if you look what he had accomplished, it was pretty amazing. He had gone further south than any man. He had disproved the existence of Terra Australis. He had mapped a bunch of islands in the South Pacific, and he had discovered and documented a bunch more islands in the Southern Atlantic Ocean. In it all, he had sailed upwards of 80,000 miles, or 130,000 kilometers, which is staggering. Also, we can't forget the scientific team. They had collected thousands of specimens, including 260 new plants and 200 animals. To top it all off, almost all of Cook's crew had made it home alive, something so rare for this type of voyage. If you want to ding Cook for anything, it might be his less than stellar handling of his second ship, the Adventure. But honestly, it was a pretty amazing expedition. And so, after the excitement of his return to England settled, Cook set out to put together his journals of the second expedition for publication. At the same time, he began to look at the next phase of his life. Remember, Cook had essentially been gone from England for six of the past seven years. He was 47 years old, not ancient, but not young by naval standards. He didn't believe he was through as a sailor, but he sought a way to obtain a position to hold him over until the next big opportunity arrived. For this, he requested a command position at the Royal Naval Hospital in Greenwich. This was considered a cushy gig, and the Admiralty was happy to reward Cook with the job. It offered comfortable quarters, if he wanted them, plus £230 annually, which put Cook in the upper 5% earners in England at this time. He wasn't rich, mind you, but he was comfortable. Plus, as a famous explorer, he now had access to the upper social circles of English society. All of this allowed Cook to relax a bit, work on his journals, and spend some time with his family. His wife, Elizabeth, would soon be pregnant again. His eldest son, James, was 12 and was already enrolled in the Portsmouth Naval Academy. His other son, Nathaniel, was not far behind. Both boys, by the way, had appeared on the roster of resolution during Cook's last voyage. This allowed them to start accruing service time in the Royal Navy. All of this was great, but let's remember, Cook never expected this to be his last job. So, while Cook and Elizabeth were able to enjoy a comfortable life, that did not mean the rest of the world was relaxing. In fact, within the British government, things were happening that were going to affect Cook and his family. England, like every other major European power, wanted better trade routes between the Americas and Asia. The golden ticket was the Northwest Passage, the fabled route through the North American continent between the Pacific and Atlantic Oceans. If that route existed, whoever found it would be fabulously wealthy. And so the British government floated a £20,000 prize to the person who found the Northwest Passage. And that gets us back to, of all people, Omai. Oh Remember him? He was the young translator from Raiatee who had been brought back to England by Tobias Furneaux. Well, Omai oh had done quite well for himself. He had learned English with the help of Jim Burney, and in England he became an engaging curiosity. Joseph Banks basically ended up hosting the guy, and he paraded Omai oh around London, a fun little sideshow to amuse the upper crust of society. Omai was funny and energetic, and people loved him. He even got to meet King George. However, Omai became spoiled and petulant, and soon he became homesick. Finally, he asked to be brought back to the South Pacific. And you know what? That was a great idea in the minds of the British Admiralty. Why not take Omai home, and at the same time, go looking in North America for the Northwest Passage? 
and so Lord Sandwich set the wheels of power in motion. The goal was another voyage to the South Seas to return Omai to his people. At least that was the public explanation for the expedition. Sure, they'd drop the guy off, but after that, they would go to the west coast of North America to search for the Northwest Passage. But who would lead such an expedition? Well, Captain James Cook was the obvious choice, but he had just returned home and had a new position. And some people had noted that Cook had returned looking tired. At 47, was he up to another years-long expedition? And so other names got bandied about. What about Charlie Clerk, Cook's very able second-in-command on the last journey? Everyone liked Clerk and thought him a fine officer. However, his reputation as a ladies' man and drinker gave pause. As for Cook, the thought of someone else heading to the Pacific to explore made him wince. He pondered asking for the job, but Cook had told Elizabeth that he was done and he had new responsibilities and duties. Also, Cook liked his new status in British society. He and his wife got to go to dinners and galas. He rubbed elbows with barons and lords and ladies. People praised his accomplishments and held him up as one of the world's preeminent explorers. Cook had his book to work on as well, and he was elected a fellow of the Royal Society. He even wrote a paper for the Society's publication, talking about his success at fighting scurvy. This was the stuff that James Cook had always dreamed of. The simple boy who had once tended the farm and dug ditches, now a well-off, accomplished gentleman. But you know what? As 1776 rolled around, it was clear that Cook was bored. Life on shore at a comfy post was not his thing. He had spent years sailing to the unknown corners of the world, commanding everyone on his ship, and taking on near-godlike dimensions to the native peoples around the world. It's intoxicating to have those kinds of responsibilities. Yet in England, he found his new world to be just a bit dull. Perhaps it was a midlife crisis, the aging champion firmly believing that he can still slug it out in the ring with the young upstarts itching for a chance at the top dog. Anyhow, on January 9, 1776, Cook was invited to a dinner with Lord Sandwich, Hugh Palisar, and Philip Stevens, the latter the Admiralty's secretary. There was a lot of drinking and talking, the three bigwigs asking Cook about his thoughts on the upcoming expedition, which was scheduled to leave in about four months. There was no commander yet selected. What were his thoughts on Charlie Clerk? And the 20,000 pounds was a ton of cash for a man who found the Northwest Passage, eh? The dinner was an obvious setup, yet Cook couldn't help but fall into the trap. For Lord Sandwich, the main thing he wanted was for Cook to come to him asking for the job, not the other way around. He wanted Cook indebted to him and the Admiralty. And it worked. Cook would finally stand up and say, quote, I will myself undertake the direction of this enterprise if I am so commanded, end quote. Everyone cheered and drank to the success of the new expedition. Honestly, this was what Cook probably desired in his heart. He wanted to get back in the saddle again, and this was his chance. And the 20,000-pound prize was the cherry on top of the cake. Cook was fine financially, but this was a chance to put him into an entirely different world. And who knows, if he was successful, it might mean a knighthood. In the end, it was all too much for Cook. He was now committed to yet another long voyage, leaving his pregnant wife home alone again. So the plan was pretty simple. Cook would take two ships and sail back to Tahiti. He would deposit Omai with his people and then sail for the western coast of North America to explore. Cook's ship was to be, again, Resolution, which was currently being overhauled. A second vessel, named Discovery, would come along, this under the command of Charlie Clerk. Cook knew that he could trust Clerk, unlike Furneaux on his previous venture. And so this is where I will leave things for today. Cook was back for one more grand adventure, this time to find the legendary Northwest Passage. However, he only had a few months to get his expedition ready to sail, and he was distracted by other things, notably the publication of his journals. There will be a dispute between Cook and Johann Forster about that subject, 
which we will talk about next time when we get Cook going on his third and final voyage. So that is it for today. I hope you've enjoyed this part of our story, which wraps up Cook's second epic voyage. The sheer scope of what Cook had done makes it one of the great voyages of discovery in history. Thank you for listening. I appreciate you coming along for this ride. Take care. I will see you next time. The Explorers podcast is part of the Airwave Media Network. Go to airwavemedia.com to find other great shows, including Settle the Stars and the Secret History of Hollywood.